Listen up, Minnesota. This is the Minnesota Made Podcast. The show that highlights Minnesota's local business leaders and experts in construction and manufacturing. If it's made in Minnesota, you'll find it here. Now, your host of the Minnesota Made Podcast, Jason Webb. What's up, Minnesota? I am at Atkinson Gerber Law Firm. Is that the correct name of the law firm I'm at here? Yeah, that's law office. Yeah, law office. Okay. And we're located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Now, this is going to be a unique podcast in the sense that it's not the typical construction or manufacturing business owner that I'm interviewing. It's professionals that specialize in the work comp process representing the injured employees. So listen up, man. If you own a business and have employees, that means you have work comp insurance and you're going to learn a thing or two. Now, most of you... I don't know. I know Tom. Tom, you represented insurance companies before getting into this side of the business. Is that correct? We we all represented both employers and insurance companies before switching to a strictly a plaintiff's practice. Uh, now you're just strictly plaintiff. Strictly injured workers. Okay. Okay. So I also own a risk management company, Minnesota Risk Partners. So uh, this is going to be kind of fun for me. I'm sure I'm going to learn a thing or two during this podcast and uh let's let's just start from the beginning the word atkinson is in the law firm's name and so is gerber so how did this all start and when did it start this this law firm about 2009 i was working for uh, at the time it was travelers insurance company we did a lot of construction i did a lot of construction uh, defense work so i on behalf of travelers insurance and prior to that st paul companies they merged so St. Paul Travelers at one time. I yep. did a lot of construction defense on behalf of um, Travelers travelers and St. Paul companies. Yep. And then at some point I started thinking, and I'd been asked by friends about switching sides, and I'd never thought that I would be a very uh, good uh, you know, plaintiff's attorney because all, I, all I've known is being a defense attorney. So I started talking to a, a colleague, a couple other lawyers, and in 2009, I think, ironically, I think the actual date of the firm's start was April 1st, 2009, even though that we started getting it together about five months before. The first day was Fool's Day. Oh, yeah? 2009, right. And so what was the motivation? You're just like, hey, you know, my, my friends think I'd be good at this, and therefore, let's go for it? Is that Or were you kind of getting, I don't know, disgruntled a little bit representing the insurance companies and seeing how things operate over there. I, I mean, no, no beef on travelers. I mean, but what was the motivation behind it? No, and I still have a lot of a lot of good friends there, or people who were there at the time when I left. It was a couple fold. One was to be your own boss. Mm. You know, run your own shop. You don't have to worry about the changes that happen every two, three years in industries, mm-hmm. whether whether it be construction or insurance, and it happens. A new VP comes in and they have new ideas and, and you kind of have to go with the flow. So I, I wanted to get away from that, but I also thought that I was a very good attorney and I could I could do a, a very good job on behalf of injured workers. So I did it. It was, you know, my partner here to my left, Carrie, she was working for another company at the time and it was scary. It was frightening to start your own practice because I didn't, I didn't get to go, uh, I didn't buy a firm or buy someone's practice. I started from scratch. Mm. And my my wife and partner was very, very, very supportive of it. And so we thought we'd do, a, I think, a six-month trial, see how it went. And and uh, it went very, very well. Good. Pretty soon we got so busy that 
Carrie quit her job and and she joined me as a partner. I mean, she was a partner because she helped found the firm, but yeah. a partner. Active. An active partner. Yeah. And then we got so busy that we wanted to hire an associate and I didn't, I thought of some names, but Carrie knew Dana, Dana Gerber, to your left, uh, from her work because they'd worked together. Both Carrie worked for an insurance company and Dana worked for a law firm. And so they had experience working together. Mm. And so Carrie suggested Dana and I didn't know Dana really. Okay. Uh, other than one time seeing her in the hallway <laughs> in court. And then we invited her to become an associate. And she worked well as an associate and she became a partner. And then we changed the firm name a few years ago to Atkinson Gerber Law. Okay. All right. So, Carrie, were you on board right away when Tom came to you with this idea? Or did you think he kind of, um, you know, lost his marbles there for a minute? I thought he had lost his marbles. Yeah, yeah. I was sitting in bed eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream <laughs> when he came in and told me. And I had just put the kids to bed. And he came in and said, look, I think I want to be my own boss. And yeah. I remember just sitting there staring at him, finishing the pint of ice cream. <laughs> and wishing there was a second and third. <laughs> and you want to support your spouse when they have ideas. And we were two parents working mm. and we wanted to be happy in our jobs and yeah so we just took a leap of faith from yeah. our basement and that's where we started and as things got busier i quickly booted him out of the house <laughs> and then you hired some support and opened up an office in saint paul okay okay Dana, when did you come on board? And and again, what were you doing before this? So I started on the plaintiff side. So I started representing injured workers and actually injured people in general in Minnesota. And then I switched over to the fence side, meaning I represented insurance companies and employers kind of defending the claims of injured workers. And then I knew Carrie in that role because she, I actually was, she would hire me to to represent insurance companies and you know, people who needed uh, representation. And then I came over to their firm once and did a deposition of one of their clients. And we sat around talking afterwards and I saw they had a great cappuccino machine. That was a huge draw for me. Um, but <laughs> it's I also, the little things. It's the little things that, yeah. that make you happy. But then I had some children and they asked me, you know, I had kids and started my family and they asked me what I did for a living as an insurance company attorney, and I could not put it into words in a way that made sense. You know, I'm like, well, if I can't explain what I'm doing to a three-year-old uh, in a way that makes sense, maybe I'm not doing what my heart wants to do. So that on top of the cappuccino machine, um, and Tom and Carrie are great people to work with, kind of had me switch back to the, the plaintiff side, the injured person side. Good. What year was that? Oh gosh, I it was my youngest is five, and it was before he was born. So okay. probably six seven years, years ago, ago. Six seven years ago. I think so. A quick message from our sponsors. This podcast was brought to you by Minnesota Risk Partners, specializing in risk management and insurance services for Minnesota-based companies. Check them out at minnesotariskpartners.com. All right. Well, I see a big advantage for you guys is you know if you're going to represent an injured employee. And in the past, you represented the insurance company. You kind of know how the sausage is made, I guess. You know the ins and outs of how an insurance company operates. For me, on the risk management side, I used to be have a med I had a medical background. I was in the, a medic in the army for six years, and then I became a doctor of chiropractic. And with work comp, there is a medical component to it. 
And so I have a unique approach on the whole risk mitigation process and trying to lower experience mods. I mean, and I start all the way from the hiring process, you know, they say like 30% of all workplace injuries occur within the first 12 months of a, of a hire. So what's the hiring process like? Are you hiring a claim that's waiting to happen? What's the uh, training process? What's the onboarding process? What, how do you handle a claim once it occurs? How do you handle an injury before it comes a claim? And a lot of insurance agents, I feel like they're really good at transferring the risk over to the insurance company, but they're not very good at mitigating the risks. Now, thinking of it from taking the information that you've learned from your past, I guess, employment, how has that helped you represent an injured employee? Tom, I'll start with you. Well, I think a lot of, I'm going to get to jump right into mistakes that I think employers make. Sure. So I think one of the biggest mistakes is rather than making an injury a teachable moment, they make it a, a sort of a penalty. Mm. When you start bringing, uh, making an injured worker disgruntled in some way. So what would be an example of something that you've seen where an employer made an injured employee feel unwelcome or disgruntled? I had a phone call today. I had an employee who was, he's uh, not a client of mine yet. Um, he had a work injury. They were in Austin, Minnesota. I'm not mentioning names, but he was in Austin, Minnesota, working for his his brother's son's company. And his brother's son has a partner, and they were on the road. So he had a work injury doing a job on the road. And the partner of his brother's son-in-law, when he reported the injury, argued that there was horseplay involved. And, there, and he's saying there was no horseplay involved. So... Rather than just taking his side of it and submitting it to the insurance company and letting okay. them do their own investigation, she took it upon herself to start taking sides right away. And and you know some people don't want to get in trouble for things, so they they don't tell the truth. So it became a denied claim right away. And he's going to reach out to me, and it becomes a he said she said type thing, or she said he said. And and, and I think if you if you do your own investigation, which is fine, and you should do an investigation, but let the insurance company make make a decision. And and give them input and have you know give them the facts as you know them, mm-hmm. give them witnesses, all that sort of stuff, and let them make their determination. Now, let's say it was horseplay. Now, I did uh, construction throughout high school, and my friend <laughs> Leon, we were shingling a house, and the the roofing nailers, the automatic, you know, hooked up to a com- air compressor, they have to have pressure on the tip of the of the gun. And he pulled that tip back and was using it as like a gun. To shoot nails, right? Dart gun. Yeah. Bop, 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 bop. And uh, <laughs> uh, he got his finger in front of it, and a, and a nail went right through his finger, right? Wasn't using it properly. He was horse playing. He was screwing around. I mean, can, would something like that typically be covered on work comp? No? No. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it could be, okay. but my gut reaction would say no. If you're screwing around with a nail gun, yeah. If you if you're screwing around with a nail gun and injure yourself, probably a denied claim. If yeah. you're screwing around and injure someone else, probably an accepted claim. Oh, okay. Yep, that makes sense. And there's foreseeability. There's a lot of factors and prohibited. We call those prohibited acts too. Mm-hmm. So if if it's even though it's prohibited, they say you can't do you. Jimmy, you can play. You can play darts with a nail gun. Yeah. That's dangerous, and everyone knows that. It's a, we get into a, a bunch of factors and prohibited acts, like foreseeability and things like that. So, sure, what Carrie said that was what I would say too. 
Okay. Now, Dana, before we got on air, you mentioned something about, you know, just because there's a slip and fall at work, that might not always be a work comp claim. Is that right? And can you uh, talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So I think another one of the mistakes that are made by employers is is not realizing generally that fault doesn't matter. So, you know, normally when an accident happens, you want to say, well, what happened? It, you know, you, sh- you shouldn't have been, you should have been doing something different. So this accident didn't happen. Um, generally, though, fault doesn't matter. So I had an employee employer once who was claiming that the employee jumped off the roof instead of falling off the roof. But it you know, doesn't really matter whether the guy jumped off the roof or whether he fell off the roof. The thing is, he was at work on the roof and he got hurt when he, when he came to the ground suddenly. Participating in an increased risk yeah, activity. He, yeah, when you're on the roof and then when you fall from the roof, you're at an increased heightened risk of injury. So kind of the personal who was at fault, who was negligent for this, whose fault was the accident, that stuff doesn't come into play. But things that employers don't, so that's one thing that that might get missed sometimes. But then the second is sometimes when someone falls at work, it's assumed that any injury that you have at work is work-related, but there has to be something from the workplace that increases the risk of injury. So in the early phases of investigation, it's it's the employer has a lot of control over documenting how the person was actually injured. Did they fall um, because they couldn't explain the reason why they were injured or did they fall because it was an icy condition or something. So an employee has to explain how they were injured. It doesn't mean that their injury wasn't their fault. They just have to be able to explain how they were injured. And that is something that an employer can do in the initial injury report to help try to put the pieces together later when insurance adjusters or attorneys are just looking at the paperwork that exists, you know, three months after the injury happened or, or, or whatever. So. Okay. All right. Uh, you mentioned documentation, Carrie. Now I'm an employee, let's say I'm an employer, I'm in construction. I have, you know, quite a few employees. Is there a process that you would recommend that would, you might call best practice that, takes place when an injury occurs in the workplace. Now, if you want to distinguish between emergency injury versus non-emergency, if you want to, you know, differentiate between was a doctor involved versus not a doctor, first report of injuries versus incident reports, you know, witness statements, accident investigation forms that should be filled out internally. Could you talk a little bit about the documentation that you think most employers should implement? Well, first of all, there's the um, notice that should be posted in plain sight about the rights of injured workers. So you can get that from the Minnesota Department of Labor and Industry and and all employers are supposed to have that posted somewhere so that if someone does get injured, they kind of have the ground rules on how to report the claim. That's a, is that a law, like a statute in Minnesota, yes. that they should have that posted somewhere? Yes. We have it posted here. <clears throat> I can show it to you. Yeah. So, and they get that from the Department of Labor? Yeah. Okay. Um, and frequently, or I shouldn't say frequently, but more frequently than not, roofing companies forget to do that because mm. you don't really have an office where yeah. you start the day. So, so what do you recommend then? Like put it in a job box somewhere? 
either that or give it to them when you when they're hired. I mean, okay. the law says it has to be posted somewhere conspicuously. So maybe post it at the job site. Yeah. But many we've represented many roofers who simply never saw the poster and had no clue how to report a claim. Mm. So best practices would be designate someone, even if you're, if you're a sole proprietor, then indicate when you hire an employee, look, if you injure yourself, tell me. I mm. need to know. An incident report has to be filled out for your own protection. Right. And then report it to the insurance company. They will complete or ask you to complete a first report of injury. And then that gets filed with the Minnesota Department of Labor and Industry. And then a little booklet gets sent out to the injured employee, just letting them know what they can expect. Um, a lot of times when it's roofing companies that you know may not be fully licensed, um, they tell employees not re- not to report their injuries. And that's not good for anyone right. because then the injured worker doesn't get the care that they might need. For example, I have a guy who fell off a roof and broke both of his ankles and mm. they never reported the claim. I mean, obviously the supervisor was there and saw the whole thing go down, but it wasn't appropriately reported to the insurance companies and bills went unpaid for months and months and months. And there were so many delays in his care that I don't think he's ever going to be able to return to roughing. So it's kind of a, that's a risk management position as well, because you want to get your injured workers back to work if you like them right. as, as soon as possible. Right. Now, the first report of injury, uh, th- there's a time frame in which that needs to be completed and filed with the state, correct? Is, is it like 10 days or... Yes. It's it's ten days. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't remember if it was ten or fourteen. Yeah. Okay. Now you talked about roofing. That's come up a few times now. And roofing contractors they pay like the the highest work comp rate out there. I mean, I've seen it like fifty to seventy dollars per hundred dollars of payroll they got to pay to the work comp company, right? So a way around that, what they think they think they're being slick, so they don't have any employees. Everybody's a ten ninety nine, right? And everybody's supposed to go out and get their own, if any, work comp policy through the state. Have you came across any of those cases that kind of didn't go as expected or hasn't that came across your desk yet? It happens all the time. All the time. (laughs) Really? It's rare that a a roofing company has work comp insurance. I don't think they even tell their their, uh, workers to go get their own insurance. They just say you're independent contractors. And Dana, you had a case where they... Took the guy to the was it you that took the, the injured worker to the hospital? Took his shirt off. Yeah, yeah. His, his his you know Jay's roofing service. They took his shirt off oh. as they were dropping him off at the hospital. Oh. Yeah. And it, yeah. it's really unfortunate because a lot of times those are the same people who don't have health insurance. They right. don't have disability insurance, and the buck just goes up and up. You know, to the general contractor all the way. I mean, even sometimes the homeowners, you know, I've sent letters to homeowners in claims where we couldn't find insurance coverage. It just goes up until you find insurance and then they're responsible for everything in between. And then they can bring claims against the owners that were supposed to have insurance. So it doesn't end with us. You know, we we have the work comp claim and it takes a year, you know, for this person to be able to get treatment. So like Carrie mentioned, a lot of times it's much, much worse than it could have been if it would have been treated appropriately. And then the general contractor comes back against the roofing companies and can sue them for violation of contract because most of them will have contracts that require them to carry workers' comp insurance coverage. Mm-hmm. So it 
it doesn't mean the injured person doesn't get coverage. It just means that it's a lot more attorneys involved, a lot more expensive. There's penalties that the state can impose as well. And a lot of times when you're trying to kind of hide the ball on that, other agencies get involved, like unemployment. So I had a case where the person was classifying people as non-employees. Well, that wasn't accurate. And so it wasn't only the Department of Labor and Industry that got involved, but unemployment got involved for mm-hmm. failure to pay unemployment premiums for years and years on all these employees. So, um, yeah, the uh, roofing is expensive for a reason. Yeah. Because people get hurt in that field and then people aren't buying insurance coverage. So you're actually covering everyone else when you have to buy that expense. There is the fund, we call it, the special compensation fund. They step in when an employer does not have insurance. So you have a business. If you have work comp insurance, we have a business. We do have work comp insurance. Part of our premium goes to the fund. And that covers the uninsured. So it's better, I think, if you're an employer who's uninsured, whether intentionally or not, to fall on the sword and admit the mistake you made. Mm. Because once you give it to the fund, you say, listen, and I have one, right? I had one just resolved. Um, he said the employee wasn't injured here. He was doing personal stuff for me, but he said, yes, we didn't have coverage. Uh, this is why it was COVID. We had a lapse. We laid off our regular employees and he cooperated mm. and she cooperated. There was a husband and, well, significant others who own the business. They cooperated and by cooperating, we were able to reach a, a good compromise. And if, if you don't compromise and you don't reach an agreement and they go to hearing and there's a, a findings and order against the the uninsured employer, you can't get out of that responsibility and liability by bankruptcy. You can't bankruptcy your way out of it. Mm. And there can be treble damages. So whatever the medical and wage loss were, you can be ordered to pay three times that. And again, you can't say, well, I'll just file bankruptcy. You can't. So. So even thing, if there's a corporation, that whole corporate veil doesn't apply. Or they we sue personal? the employer and we sue the uh, the individual. Wow. I'm sorry, Carrie. What were no, you? No, that's say? all right. It's also important for employers to know that just because you tell someone they're a subcontractor, that doesn't always carry. No, it's not enough. There are specific forms that need to be filed. And doesn't the IRS have like a checklist of like seven things to determine if they're really subcontractors or not? Like if I say you're my subcontractor, I can't dictate like when you start and when you end, like the day. Uh, I don't know. There's like the very Department specific, of Labor has a, has is a, it a Department list. of Labor. Yeah, it's like a checklist. Like if you, if you fail any one of these, they are an employee. Right. Yeah. Especially in the state of Minnesota, there's very, very specific criteria to um, that an employer needs to establish that an employee is not an employee. Yeah. Just having a contract signed where you give you hire someone and say, here, you agree you're an independent contractor. You have to get your own coverage mm-hmm. and you sign that and, and, and you get hurt. The injured worker gets hurt then. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what that contract says. Right. Right. Yeah. And I view the whole independent contractor thing as putting myself in the position of a homeowner and I'm hiring a contractor to build a deck. Now, me being the homeowner, hiring an independent contractor to build the deck, I can't tell them, like, you got to show up on this day and you keep working until this time and you can only work on my home. You can't go over here and work over there and do over that. You know, I can't do that. So, I mean, if I own, let's, and again, in this case, a roofing company, if I'm hiring all these independent contractors, but yet I'm telling them when the, their workday starts and ends and where they're going each day, I would, I would view that as a fail, right? Right. They are an employee now. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. 
Dana, you mentioned homeowner. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any, have came across this type of situation, but let's say I do hire somebody to build the deck of my home and I don't ask them if they're insured or not. I don't get a copy of their insurance and they, they, they get hurt at my place, my personal residence, and they don't have work comp insurance. Am I, as the homeowner, could I be found liable at all to pay for their time lost or their medical bills? I think you could. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what everybody else here thinks. Generally, when I send the letter to the homeowner, the general contractor gets involved and yeah. and make sure that coverage is is you know. I think it'd be very very unlikely. Like, you know, Jill, the deck, the you know, the handy the handy woman who's has an ad in the back, of the local paper. I think unless a homeowner exerts a lot of control over the process, you're building a house maybe you know that they do their own general. Yeah. But a deck. If I yeah. heard there's there's nothing, no one would think that I know anything about a deck and would give them any control. So yeah, but would you if that that guy you're hiring to build your deck? Would you ask them for proof of insurance before they're allowed to work on your property or not? Well, they don't have to have they don't have to have work comp insurance if they're a solo. Like okay. if I'm a solo attorney and I have no employees, mm-hmm. I don't need to have under the state of Minnesota work okay. comp insurance. I recommend people do get their own coverage though. Mm-hmm. It's cheap disability insurance for most employers except for roofers Mm -hmm. you get your own coverage like we have a business we are partners under a typical work comp policy we are excluded Mm -hmm. but we we pay extra for an endorsement so we have coverage for ourselves gotcha i had that exact situation happen a homeowner hired uh, a guy to build a deck and he was working on it uh, at a high level on a very windy day with his own equipment his own ladder. The homeowner didn't tell him where to put the ladder. It wasn't her ladder. Due to you know high winds, the ladder fell over, and he was seriously injured, including a traumatic brain injury. Oh, that was not the homeowner's fault at all. That we had to show that there was some unknown, unforeseen circumstance, like if there was a sinkhole mm-hmm. that the homeowner knew about but didn't tell the deck builder about it and then he inadvertently sticks his ladder there and then it collapses, then maybe the homeowner is responsible. Okay. But if the deck builder has complete control over how he's doing his job right. and he doesn't insure himself, that's really yeah. tough. Yeah. Okay. An exception would be, well, I like um, nannies or childcare people, yeah. those, you know, if you have people coming into your house on a regular basis, I'm even like, even like cleaning companies, I, you know, it, I do like it when people who come to my home and work on my home have insurance or have mm. work comp coverage. And I purchased extra work comp coverage for them just because if you can be construed as an employer, you might want to, you know, know that there's a work that the buck is going to stop before it gets to you. So um, all about that checklist. Like you said, if you say, Bob, you can go ahead and use the vacuum and the cleaner and I got the special solution I'm going to use and you can only come in on Tuesdays and, and I don't want you cleaning one else that day or whatever. Yeah. The more you limit their ability to do, do their other own work, thing. do their yeah. own thing, the more trouble you're going to get. Gotcha. Now, when when do you suggest an injured employee who is going through the work comp process that they contact an attorney? We may differ. Okay. Or, so. There's no right and wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. And so we may differ. My philosophy is that when you get injured, if it's significant in any way, you should contact an attorney right away. And how would you define significant? You're going to lose time from work and, and need to have over $1,000 worth of, 
of expenses. I just like to talk to people. I've I've talked to three people today already. Mm-hmm. Right? We're not going to sign any of them up. Mm-hmm. But I I don't mind taking twenty minutes to tell them that there's four primary benefits in work comp. There's wage benefits. There's medical. There's vocational assistance. We don't have pain and suffering. We have something called PPD, and I talk about QRCs, and mm-hmm. I kind of let them know the lay of the land. And I said if they use the word independent medical examination to you as a red flag, then you should call us back. So I, I, I want them to know what to expect, and I think anyone who has a significant injury or a moderate injury should reach out to an attorney. Not that you need a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I don't think you always need a lawyer. Yeah, But just to talk to one, and we're always happy to, talk with almost anyone, anyone. Mm-hmm. And then when something comes up, they give us a call. So generally, insurance companies have 14 days to either accept or deny a claim. So frequently I get calls on Monday morning about an accident that happened on Friday. And so then I say, you know what, give it two weeks. Um, and if no one has reached out to you, then give me a call back. I will give them sort of a brief summary, like Tom said, about what their rights are and what they can expect to happen. But if there's absolutely no contact between, hopefully, the insurance company and the injured worker, then they've got to reach out to an attorney because it's such a technical area of law that the layperson out there really has no idea what's going on or what their rights are. We get a lot of calls because the employer doesn't know who their work comp carrier is or fumbles and delays giving them information. Purposefully, you think? Sometimes purposefully, sometimes. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they just don't know or they don't remember or it's not their job and someone's gone. And and injured workers panic Mm -hmm. and they can't get an answer fast enough. So they're going to Google and they're going to find us or someone else. And some other lawyers are going to be very aggressive Right, they're going to be very aggressive, and they're going to sign them up right away. Yeah, we're not we're not not that firm. Yeah, but if you just if if I can give a tip to an employer who's listening, give them your work comp contact information. It's a travelers. Here's the eight hundred number. Here's policy our policy number. number yeah. and give them a call. Yeah, and then you do your job as an employer with an investigation, as Carrie said. But yeah. don't hide anything from them. Be open. Yeah, whether you think it's a real injury or not. Well, and the same is true for, you know, there's good adjusters and there's bad adjusters. There's some adjusters that don't answer their phone. So a lot of calls we get are just because it's been sitting on the adjuster's desk for two weeks and the employee has had no response. So an employer can call the adjuster. An employer can, you know, they are party to the lawsuit as well. So feel free to reach out to your insurance company. Feel free to reach out if, if they do have to retain an attorney. That defense attorney is an attorney for the insurance company and for you. So I take it as an opportunity to learn more about the process because it's an attorney you don't have to pay the hourly fees for. Your insurance company is paying them. So you might as well learn more about the process and what's actually happening with the claim because your name is on the lawsuit as well. Yeah, the more information you share with an injured worker, the better it is for you because the least likely they're going to contact an attorney. Mm. So just be open and transparent. Yeah, I'm and, sorry. No, I was just going to add that, you know, for the employers out there, Dana raises a really good point. When the lawsuits get started, for lack of a better word, it's, it's a claim. Mm. The employer's name is on that claim and they're paying boatloads of money for the insurance premiums. So 
reach out to the insurance company and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do because you paid for this benefit and you're entitled to a proper defense and that's part of their policy. So if uh, a claim or a lawsuit occurs as the employer, don't just hand it off to the insurance company and sit in the corner and hope they do a good job for you. Like ask questions, get involved, making sure that, you know, you're being represented properly and get all your questions answered, right? Yes, absolutely. I guess the- Be proactive. Be proactive, but then the other side of the coin is don't take it personally. You know, that's what we talk to our clients about all the time too. It's, it, you know, even because, because work comp is different than other types of injury claims because it's personal. You know, sometimes Mm. you have an employee that's been working there for 20 years or 10 years or whatever. They feel like they've invested their life into this thing. And then they have an urgent care visit that goes for 45 days without being paid. And so it feels personal to them. Mm. The employer, it, it, you know, I think comp judges expect an employer to be a professional organization where it's not as personal. You know, this is just an insurance claim, you know. It, it, so I think sometimes employers can can use the same advice where, you know, don't don't have a human resource person who's looking at everything so personally and getting angry and, ha- you know, it's it's just a claim. It's an injury claim. It's supposed to be no fault and 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 just process it like you would process any other um, business expense um, versus looking at it as a personal assault against, you know, you being an unprofessional employer or something. It It doesn't have to have so many feelings involved and especially from the employer side of it. Good. Uh, Tom, let, take me through the process. I got injured at work. I come to you and I say, I tell you what happened. And uh, I'm kind of getting the runaround. Uh, my medical bills don't seem to be getting paid. My employer doesn't talk to me. I'm getting the cold shoulder. I don't know if I have a job to come back to. There's no early return to work program. Now what? What, what Carrie said is important. First thing I ask, when was the date of injury? Okay, uh, 30 days ago. Okay, so that's... If you haven't heard from an insurance company by now, then we're going to have a nice long conversation. Uh, typically, I want them to come in or spend time with them on the phone and really go through things. When were you hurt? How were you hurt? Um, anyone witness it? Describe for me what happened. What body parts are involved? What was your wage? Um, how long did you work there? I'd like to know if they have a spouse or not to see. As Dana said, when you have an injury, you're, you're put in conflict with your employer, yeah. the people who pay you. So I want to know, do they have a spouse? Do they have a backup if they aren't getting paid or are they out there all by themselves? Sure. When everything goes perfect in work comp, you still only get two-thirds of your wage loss in most cases, right? Yep. So right oh, away- there's exceptions to that? Yeah, I have, a, I have a gal right now who's AWW, her average weekly wage is $3,800 per week. We have a max comp rate of about $1,200 per week. So she doesn't get two-thirds. She gets about a third of her lost wages. There's a maximum the state requires an insurance company to pay. They won't pay more than the max. They won't pay more than the max. So she's getting a third of what she makes. She's a single gal. She's 57 years old. She's she's terrified. Yeah. I mean, she's a nurse. She's a professional. She has a master's. But she's living her life based upon an income X. Yeah. And she has bills, car payments, food, whatever. Yeah. And it's terrifying. Yeah. She's right now been back to work. They paid for everything until she got back to work working part-time and they haven't paid her the what we call temp partial yet. Mm. They haven't paid the two-thirds difference for, oh. for four weeks. Mm. So someone dropped the ball there and and now we're going to get involved. And what does that mean to get involved? 
You're going to notify the, put the insurance company on notice that uh, you, they're being represented by you guys? So for her, I'm going to want to get the op report. She just had surgery. Mm-hmm. She had a hamstring tear wrapped around her sciatic nerve. It like, like a rubber band snapped and wrapped around the sciatic nerve. And Jeez. So she had surgery for that. And I want to get the operative report. I want her current restrictions, maybe her restrictions even before that. We do a lot of things now with COVID with DocuSign. So mm-hmm. before we'd have people come in or we'd have our investigator, we used to have two of them, we'll go out and meet them throughout the entire state of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Now with DocuSign, we do hearings, depositions, and initial client meetings by phone, and we send the, the pertinent papers via DocuSign. The retainer agreement, the notice of appearance, the authorizations, the Department of Labor Industry release, insurance company releases, we DocuSign – People are very adept at getting us back these documents like I asked for, the report of workability. Yeah. And I meet someone at 10, I can have a claim followed by what, you know, after lunchtime and get a phone call because we do electronically too, by the way. Mm-hmm. So we follow with the state electronically and with some employers and insurers electronically. And I can have a phone call from the insurance company tomorrow, hopefully. And it's- another tip for employers, if you get a letter of representation from an attorney Tell your insurance company right away because they need to know because you're owed a defense. And as soon as you get the insurance company involved, they will hire an attorney to represent the employer. Sometimes they think they can fix it and they call us and argue with us. And we're like, no, you need to contact your insurance company. No, and they argue with us for days or even weeks. They're just reluctant to even tell them? Yeah, it's kind of like they want to fix it. (laughs) Well, they want to they avoid their premiums yeah. going uh, sky high. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm that person with the torn hamstring, and I'm not getting that two-thirds of my wage above and beyond, you know, what my part-time that I'm not working. So you file the paperwork with the insurance company and with the state, right? Call the claim petition. And, and then you speak to the insurance company and try to, you know, Get questions answered. Why isn't this getting paid? At what point does do things appear in front of the judge? And is there a judge involved in these types of cases sometimes? Well, we file the claim petition. In the old days, that there maybe they would call us, but now it, we, I just think it's easier for me for my files. I just want to file it and get it to an attorney. I want the attorney to get it. Once in a while, an adjuster will call and say, "We dropped the ball. We dropped," you know. The good adjusters will say, if it's a legitimate yeah. claim that they, we missed it, we missed we'll it. Pay. We'll pay. We'll pick it up. That's fine. I love that. Yeah. I love those cases. Yeah. My client's happy. Everyone's happy. It's quick and easy. Yep. When they don't, though, what happens is they refer to their insurance company. The insurance company signs a law firm or an attorney. They file an answer. They typically um, send us authorizations to get additional records from our clients medical records, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, then they take a deposition of a client. Usually they come in the office or they do it by Zoom or Teams now. so Are you present for those depositions or not? We're always present. So it's the injured worker, court reporter, defense attorney, and, and us. Okay. So sometimes our clients come in here, we sit with them in person. Like we would be right now, you could be the you know the attorneys, the court reporters, we're all here in one room. Is that a stressful process for the injured worker? Yes, because yeah. they have a stranger asking questions they don't know. It's not stressful for us, yeah. but it is for them. Yeah. But we do deposition, and then there's a typically what happens is an independent medical examination. 
we call them adverse examinations. Usually, they're really not independent. <laughs> they're really <laughs> they're not. hired by the insurance company. Yeah. They are, but they and they're, they're paying for an opinion that they typically know they're going to get. Yeah, and then we if the IME isn't favorable, like it normally isn't, ninety five percent of the time, then we get a narrative from the treating physician. But sometimes treating physicians are like, I can make more money doing, you know, two surgeries today rather than looking through all these medical records and then sending, you know, a report to you. So I don't want to get involved. And sometimes we'll have to try and find an expert for them and get our get our own report. And then typically we have a mediation or settlement talks and then we go to hearing. But we're not like a lot of firms. We're not afraid to try cases. We try a lot of cases. I think in the past two weeks, three of us have tried three cases to hearing. Mm. Which I know there's a lawyer or two out there that have never tried a case in their in their practice. They're always just trying to make a deal. Just sign them up, cut it cut it quickly. Yeah. I think your original question was, you know, when do you get to court? Yes, and and there, there can be different circumstances. It can take a year and a half or it can take a month. It depends on what benefit has been denied, whether benefits were started and then just abruptly stopped without explanation in that type of situation, you get in front of a judge pretty quickly. But when it's a long, protracted, complicated injury process, you might not get in front of a judge for a year and a half. Okay. Even in hardship cases. Now, you mentioned PPD. <clears throat> We're in front of a judge and there's a, what is it, a partial permanent disability settlement? Is that right? The PPD? Uh, PPD is permanent partial disability. Permanent partial disability. Pretty close, but it's it's not, you know, work comp doesn't have pain and suffering. It doesn't have compensation for the injury itself. It's all based on wage loss and medical bills. But PPD is like a percentage of body loss that you've made or that you've suffered because of the injury. And that percentage correlates to a dollar amount. And it's, you know, it's supposed to be based on your loss of function. And it really doesn't correlate to the type of numbers that people would would think. You know, my back is injured and I will never be able to, you know, play with my kids the way I used to. And it, it's like $10,000. Or if you have surgery or something, it, it can be greater than that. But it's never, it's not even supposed to be compensation for your injury. It's, it's just supposed to be loss of function. And the statutes and rules interpreting those statutes are very specific on on what can be rated and what can't be rated. It's all supposed to be based on objective findings. So things like a traumatic head injury, they're very difficult to rate. And so there's actually, there there's people working on changing those rules to make them more in line with, with modern science and, and, and what's understood now, but that's what PPD is. And the way I understand it is, let's say I have 50% loss of my right thumb and is there like a, a database where basically you look up hand, you look up thumb, you look up 50% reduction equals $6,000, something like that? Yeah, but it probably wouldn't be $6,000. <laughs> okay. You know, it's it's based on your total body loss, not just the not loss just of the a thumb. body part. Oh, yeah. okay. So it's like, well, how much does that thumb... I got impact? nine other fingers. You got nine right. other... I mean, your thumb's your most important one, but... You know, you've got nine others. And it's even like people whose tips of their fingers get cut off. It's depressing what that actually correlates to in terms of dollar amounts, especially if your hobby was playing the piano. You know, now you can't do it like you used to do. If you didn't make money playing the piano, then that does not correlate into work comp. 
And it it's tough. Those are tough conversations. Those are yeah, tough. the employees really, they it's hurtful to them to know that they are just getting paid based on a database because most injured employees come to us and it's the first time that they've ever been injured at work. And so they're talking to their neighbor and their neighbors are saying, oh my gosh, you can't play piano anymore. You can't play the guitar anymore. Yes, I love. You can't garden anymore. That, you know, you got to sue them. Well, that's pain, disability, and emotional distress, and that's not compensated in work comp. Is there any way to get compensated for that outside of workers' comp or not really? No, not unless there's a third party involved. In other words, let's say I've got a truck driver and she is hit by another truck driver. Well, she's got two claims. She's got a claim with her employer for workers' compensation, but then she has a separate claim against the other assuming, driver. Yeah, assuming the other driver was negligent. There's a separate claim there where she could get pain, disability, and emotional distress. And then that kind of opens a new can of worms because the workers' compensation insurance company also has an opportunity to get at least partially reimbursed from that other negligent oh, sure. truck driver. I want to just jump in on that one because there's actually a third claim that employers never make. And if if the accident was caused by the fault of someone else, like a, a drunk driver or um, you know you 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 have a delivery person and and the you know they fall because someone's sidewalk has a sinkhole in it or something and and you can sue someone else if there's a third party claim an employer can make a claim against that person for the increase in their insurance premiums it's never made and it's waived almost well I have not read a step since I left doing defense that protects that right. It's waived by the insurance company because it's not their claim. It's the employer's claim. You can make a separate and distinct claim for increase in your insurance premium. So you hear that, Ruffers? <laughs> you have your own claim there. Yeah. How so- would they go about doing that? Would they just go to – who would they contact? Uh, you would have to have an expert, um, someone who works in modification ratings, mm-hmm. to say this is how much your premium has gone up because of this accident. Yep. And then that is your claim. So your your yep. attorney, when you have an attorney who is asserting that as an employer, you know you have an yeah. insurance company attorney that represents you and the insurance company. You you should actually have an attorney making that claim for you. If, what what if, kind of attorney would I would I contact if I'm the employer for something like that? Well, I've almost done it. So so your insurance, the person who's representing you as a. Um, it's a subrogation attorney that mm-hmm. generally does it. Sometimes the uh, defense firms have a, an in-house attorney that does it. Sometimes it's a separate attorney that does the subrogation. But so they, they go, they wouldn't go through their work comp insurance company to file that claim, would they? Would, would they go outside of that? You would. You would start there. I would start okay. by asking the attorney who's representing me in the work comp action: Is somebody going to protect this right of mine? And because they're your attorney too, it's going to make them a little uncomfortable, but it's a right that you have that commonly gets waived. Interesting. I'm dealing with one of those claims right now where this 19-year-old working at a machine shop stuck a screwdriver into a breaker panel, electrocuted himself. Oh, gosh. And... uh, Did he die? No, no. He immediately went to the hospital and then zero contact after that. The employer tried reaching out, zero contact. He goes and finds out, files for his own QRC, hires an attorney right away. Zero contact. And uh, this claim has been open now for probably six months. Lots of money has been paid on it. One of the diagnoses he's 
presenting as PTSD now. And uh, yeah, there's no end in sight. The insurance company, you know, finally has filed an IME. Uh, nothing seems to really be getting better. And there's an, another diagnosis. It's like chronic extremity pain or something like that. Complex regional pain syndrome, CRPS. Yeah. yeah. So that one along with PTSD, <clears throat> he's 19-year-old. And uh, yeah, it's a tough situation. My client, the employer is in like, you can't, you know, immediately, no contact. So I don't know. Any comment on that one? <laughs> we, can, we can talk when we're done about that one. <laughs> <laughs> and their, their work comp insurance is renewed and their insurance premiums pretty much doubled. Yeah. Um, the mod went up like 50 points so in when one you year. Say, I'm sorry. When you say there's zero contact, there's zero contact between whom? The injured worker and the employer? Or Initially, the- yep. Okay. Yep. And then, the, uh, and then the employee, injured employee, immediately got a QRC and an attorney like right away. And um, now, you know, the insurance company, in this case, it's Hanover. They're, they're just like, I don't know, just do an IME, I guess. He keeps, he goes in for all kinds of not only physical therapy, but also uh, mental therapy for the PTSD portion of it. So, yeah, it's a, it, it's an ugly one. <laughs> That's a situation where I would, if there's zero contact between the injured worker and the employer, that's probably a misdirection from the insurance company. They likely sent out a notice saying, look, we've got this claim. Don't talk to this guy. Oh, no, they've tried reaching out. But oh. the, had, they, had they filed a claim? Has the, has the attorney filed a, a claim? Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's why there can't be contact then. Well, even the, like the very next day before the, any attorneys gotten, got involved, the employer was reaching out to the employee to make sure they're okay and what are, what's your work restrictions and no return calls, no nothing. That's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. Yeah. And, and that's where I think we see this more and more with the internet and Google. People Google and they... Um, they called the attorney who took the case right away, yeah. signed them up, versus the vast majority of the time will say, well, let's see how it plays out. Mm-hmm. Let's see whether they deny something. They got an attorney who was just like, no, I'm just going to sign them up. And Yeah. Well, but then also you have, I have a case now where the person had PTSD as, you know, it was, it was the result of an assault, but she, you know, she can't even answer my calls, let alone, you know, talking to someone, her employer or their insurance company. Um, She had a hard time even talking to the investigating police officer. You know, when you have PTSD that's hanging in the background, um, I mean, it's, it's a different type of decision tree that people go through when they're trying to handle their medical care, their QRC and attorney, they're, they're scared, you know? And the QRC, the qualified rehabilitation consultant, that is a person who's supposed to be facilitating communication between the injured (coughs) worker and the employer. So if you're in a situation where this young, I would call him a kid, sorry, Mm -hmm. just because you're over 18 doesn't mean you're an adult, you know, he's a kid and he, is terrified. And if he's got PTSD and now CRPS, the chronic regional pain syndrome, he's terrified. So he really should be using that QRC to communicate, especially restrictions. If he if he can work, I'm sure the employer would like to get him back to work because that minimizes the cost of the claim. Mm-hmm. The insurance company wants to get him back to work too to minimize their risk. Yeah. Um, so that's where the QRC is helpful, especially when it sounds like you're dealing with just a really scared young man. Yeah, and if, there, if there's no litigation, 
the employer can contact the QRC because the QRC is the neutral party and they're there for everybody, including the employer, hmm. and get the QRC on board to help facilitate conversations. Okay. Do we have light duty? Anything we can do to, to assist the employee coming back to work? Let the doctor know that we have light duty work for them and this is what we can do. And if that doesn't work, let come talk to us. We'll make changes. But if there's litigation and there's attorneys involved, then that employer does have to go through the attorney who was chosen by Hanover for them. Okay. And they can talk to the QRC. Okay. All right. I just noticed we're approaching an hour here already. Time flies when you're having fun, right? So if I'm an injured employee and I'm, I'm not sure what I should do, I've been off work for a while, I haven't heard from the insurance company or something just doesn't seem right, what should I do? Uh, should I go on your website, give you guys a call? And, uh, you know, is that basically most situations you come across is an injured employee is kind of confused on what to do and then they come to you and what's the best way to come to you? Whether they talk to us or someone else, I really want them to, to find an experienced attorney. I don't want them to file an ambulance chasers, you know, find one like that. Find an experienced attorney who specializes in work comp. Preferably that's all they do or they've done for at least 15 plus years. Mm-hmm. Because listen, if, you, if you're going to have your, your kid have a brain surgery, you don't want to hire a doctor who just came out of residency has only been doing this for a year or two. But mm-hmm. boy, they make me feel good. Right. You don't want that. You want the best of the best. Right. So find lawyers like us who we think we are the best of the best. We have a website, workcomplawyers.com. You can call us at 651-333-3636. We're happy to have a phone conversation with anyone who's injured. Mm-hmm. And in a matter of minutes, we'll know if we can help you. But a conversation can last anywhere from five minutes to, to a half an hour. And we can give you information mm-hmm. and answer questions for you. But it doesn't mean you need an attorney or we're going to represent you. Okay. I love the website. Check it out, guys. WorkCampLawyers.com. The one thing I really like about you guys is that you you worked on the other side of the fence. You've seen how the insurance companies operate and you know their little, maybe some dirty tricks that some of them play. And uh, you're wise to that. So therefore, you know how to respond. And if I was an injured employee, that's the type of attorney I would want to deal with. Not only somebody that specializes in what it is I'm in need of, but also has worked the other side. And they know how the other side also works. So check them out, guys. Again, it's workcomplawyers.com. All right, Tom, Carrie, Dana, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Made Podcast. Want to be a guest on Minnesota Made or know someone who should be? Apply online at minnesotamadepodcast.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes become available. And we'll see you next time on Minnesota Made.